Okay. Okay. We're going to start with a toast. Yeah? Yeah. We're drinking peach bellini today. (laughs) And my husband bought us this bottle of peach bellini about a week and a half ago and said that we should drink it during one of our podcasts because... He was like the uh, president of our fan club (laughs) because he had then listened to all of our podcasts. Took him a while, but he did. And he was very proud of both of us for our podcast. And so today we're going to do a podcast in honor of my husband, Bob. (laughs) Cheers. We just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. It's (laughs) mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Should we start with a uh, disclaimer? Yes. A big fat disclaimer. A big fat disclaimer that this episode's going to sound a little different than our usual episodes. So if this is the first time you're listening to us, don't. (laughs) This is not what we normally do. This isn't what we usually sound like. Go back, listen to some of our other episodes, get a feel for how we usually sound, and then come back. Because this is a bit of a different situation than we're usually in. Mm Mm-hmm. That being said, that those of you who are faithful sipsters and are with us a lot and you know what our podcasts sound like, we do hope you'll stay with us and and share with us this moment because uh, we try to be real. Be real. And so this week we're being really, really real. And that's that's also kind of a a general disclaimer that if you do... I mean, we we talk a lot about taking care of your mental health first and foremost. So if we're going to be talking about death in this episode, and if that really does bother you, first of all, I would say, you know, make sure to take care of yourself. And if you can't handle that, then don't listen to this episode. But also, sometimes it's worth talking about the hard stuff. Absolutely. And if you feel like you can handle it, or if you feel like you want to challenge yourself to handle it, then we encourage you to do that too. And if you've had a death recently in your own family, in your own life, you might want to listen to this podcast with somebody. That might help. Yeah. Open up the conversation a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. Have somebody to cry on a little, maybe. Speaking of crying. We might be doing some of that today. So We're going to be doing more crying than laughing, I think, this week. Yeah. So, So, Mom, do you want to tell our sipsters about what's going on? Yes. Just about a week ago, my husband died. My husband and Anna's adopted father, he actually did adopt my kids after we were married, so they share his name. And um, My husband, Bob, uh, had actually been sick, had struggled a lot with health, but his death was very unexpected. Yeah. He um, had been a kidney transplant uh, recipient a little over 20 years ago, and that kidney lasted for 20 whole years. and, and Which is amazing. It is amazing. But in the last, gosh, in the last about five to seven years, Bob's health has declined. He developed diabetes and so struggled a lot with his diabetes. In the last few years, he had lost parts of his feet, 
Um, during that time in the last seven years, he had cancer. Um, he had open heart surgery about four and a half years ago, quadruple bypass surgery. He's since had a couple of stents put in his heart. He had congestive heart failure, which is kind of uh, what took him in the end, basically. But when his kidneys started failing again about four and a half years ago, I, I would say the last five years was especially difficult because he has been on dialysis uh, for much of that time because his kidney had gotten to a point where he couldn't uh, live without dialysis. And so that was a big part of his life. There are so many things that I could tell you about what we went through in that time, but I will just say it's been a very challenging five years. So part of what we're going to talk about today is grief. Yeah. Um, and part of what we're going to talk about, too, is uh, caregiver fatigue, because sometimes those two things kind of go hand in hand. Because a lot of the stuff that mom is not going to kind of go into details-wise is that she was his caregiver. She was the person who did a lot of his at-home medical procedures and took him to all his appointments and was with him through all the surgeries. And it was very hard to watch that affect not only Bob, but also mom. This loss is very, very fresh for us. We literally just buried Bob two days ago. So we went back and forth about whether or not we should do a podcast this week. But I think Bob would want us to do it. <laughs> and we had this bottle of peach bellini that he bought for us. There were several things that happened um, in the last couple of weeks that were just kind of odd things that make me kind of look at it all um, like maybe he had an inkling that it was coming. But like I said in the beginning of the podcast, you know, we had, there were several times in the last five years we thought that was it. There were times when he was in the hospital and we literally planned his funeral and yeah. were talking about what was going to happen and, and he would bounce back. He had such an indomitable spirit. Oh my gosh, he would not <laughs> give up. Nope. And people would say, you know, it's amazing that he's still alive. And, and in the last just few weeks, he had just passed a stress test that gave him finally, after a long journey, gave him the opportunity to have a kidney transplant. And his brother, his brother James, was going to give him his kidney on September 5th. And Bob was really excited. And so for the last couple of weeks, he had been you know, very hopeful and happy and trying to do more. But, but I could also see kind of a fatigue in him the last few days that was different. Just the last two or three days, there was something different going on. And I kind of think that maybe even Bob knew, but he didn't want to. You know, in the last couple of years, every once in a while, when I would get scared, he would say, I'm going to be around for a long time. We're going to get old together. And there was always this rational part of my brain saying that's probably not going to happen because of all of his health issues, and, and I'm kind of a realist, and, and he was always a person who looked at things kind of through rose-colored glasses, but yet it was a shock, and, yeah. and he died at home, and this is another part that maybe we can throw in um, with our psychology issues stuff that we talk about yeah. is the trauma of finding a loved one who has died when you're not expecting that to happen. Because that, we that was... talked about how, I mean, mom has lost both of her parents, mm -hmm. and they both died in the hospital mm -hmm. where, I mean, you don't really have to deal with the, where does the body go now? And yeah. what, what happens now? And what does this? But on Monday, I, I got called from work to go be with her at home. And, I mean, there was a body in the other room. Mm -hmm. And it took so long for that to be taken care of by the proper authorities and you just kind of have to wait in this limbo of I just found my husband and I now what do I do when there's all these people walking through my house and it's very surreal mm, that's a good word 
I think anytime you lose a loved one, you go, it's a long time that you have that feeling like this can't be real. And you hear people talking about, you know, I expect him to walk in the door or I expect to get a text from him or whatever. And that's very true. But it's also just so surreal that you find someone you love that isn't alive anymore. It's, there's no, there are no words to make it make sense, to make it feel real. There are no words. So should we start with the grief part or do you want to start Let's with the Let's start with the fatigue. Can we do that? Yeah. Because I think part of my part of of what I'm dealing with even now and I know it's probably going to get worse is this feeling like overwhelming feeling like what do I do now? Because for the last several years Bob has been my main concern. I mean even though I've worked a lot And for a while there, we were going to school to get our master's degrees. And then I took on another job after that, you know, to be a counselor. And but always first was Bob. And, you know, we I would take time off work to take him to different uh, hospitals and medical facilities. And for a while, we actually did dialysis in our home. And I had to do home hemo for him where I had to be the person who like put the needles in and set up the machine and all that. So that was a lot. It was a lot. That period of time was very... That was while we were getting our master's degree. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to talk for just a little bit about caregiver fatigue. And actually, um, sometimes it's called compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. I had never heard that until I started doing some research on it. But it could go both for like people who are taking care of a loved one. And so it could be a spouse, but it could also be a child. For a lot of people, it's their parents that they get to a point where they have to be the caregiver for their parents. But there's also kind of a a other side of the coin, and that is for people who are in caregiver professions. And so that'd be counselors, Anna. Well, and that's, that's, I mean, that's nurses and that's, God, hospice workers. Oh, my Lord. There's there's such a high turnover for all those professions for this reason, I Mm -hmm. think. Well, I think about those people in the funeral home who took such good care of us. You said that on Monday, while you were going through the death of your husband to like, I think you said to the police officer and the mortician, you were like, how do you do this every day? Mm-hmm. Like even then you were thinking of them, of those people and like, how, how do you handle this? Right. Because carrying that home every day, you know, and mm-hmm. having those thoughts. And not, not just, you know, the dealing with a dead body, which for me personally would be a big deal. But like dealing with the grief of the people you're with and that. Yeah, I think that more so. Would, absolutely. Because at some point, as callous as it sounds, that those just become dead bodies. They right. just become meat that right. you're dealing with. Yeah. I know that sounds horrible, but there's no, I mean. They don't are, know that person as yeah. a personality. And if we are thinking of it in terms of, of spirituality, there's no soul there. At least right. that's what I believe. I mean, like. That's what I believe, th- too. When they're dead, the soul is gone. And so that's just a body. Forgive me for throwing personal things in, but mom, I think that's what this week is about. It's okay. That was one of the first things that was like a cognitive thought that was actually a thought when I was in the room with Bob when I realized that he wasn't breathing and he didn't have a heartbeat and I was calling 911 was that it sunk into me that when I came into the room, you know, there's, there's a feeling when you come into the room with someone you love that that person's there. When I came into the room, it was like that wasn't him anymore. Mm -hmm. He was already gone. I felt the same thing when my mother died because my mom died in the hospital, but I was literally heading to her room. When I got to her room, the nurse, my dad was standing in the hallway, and the nurse said to me, you can still talk to her because her heart's beating because mom stopped breathing for quite a while before her heart just kind of ran out, basically, and I knelt down beside her bed to talk to her 
but I realized that she wasn't, you know, that was the same feeling. She wasn't there anymore. So what I do believe spiritually is that we are, we are actually spirit. We are spirit beings who are in a body. We're in a human suit. Right. This is our, our costume that we wear for our lifetime. And then our spirit is set free. That's what I believe. And I believe that Bob had a very strong faith. And I believe that Bob is, is with God. And quite honestly, that's how I'm surviving right now. If I didn't have that, I don't know how I would survive. So, okay. I'm going to switch back to caregiver fatigue for a second. Okay. If you are a person who does take care of someone like that through the years, or even if it's just weeks, it doesn't take very long to get that caregiver fatigue. Some of the things that you might notice for yourself are that you kind of withdraw from your family and your friends because you're so focused on that person. You might have a lack of motivation for your job and and just doing anything new. You just kind of do the bare minimum of things. When I read this list, it kind of sounds like depression in general, but um, depression is actually on the list. The next one is if you notice that you're you're using alcohol or drugs to kind of try to escape or sleeping pills um, that you wouldn't normally be doing. If you yourself start to like miss your own doctor appointments or you start forgetting about some of your own responsibilities. This is when you're getting dangerously into a category where you will be getting fatigue if you haven't full-blown gotten it yet. If you're not able to fall asleep or or stay asleep, or maybe it's the opposite. You just want to sleep all the time and you try to sleep as much as you can. And even on the list it says feelings of depression, hopelessness, alienation, helplessness. And the last one I find interesting is resentment toward the patient. There were days, there were times when I felt angry because I felt like Bob wasn't doing enough to take care of himself. Mm-hmm. And I know I have actually spoken very recently with a client whose husband is very ill. And, she, you know, she was talking about how she gets very angry and she has to really, like, pray about it and hold herself back to not express that anger toward her husband. Mm-hmm. And I can speak, too, that you don't even really know what you're angry about. And there were days I would say to Bob, I know I'm I'm, I'm being really crabby today and I'm sorry. I don't really know what exactly it is, but I'm taking it out on you because I'm, you know... But he was usually, if I would say that up front, you know, he was usually good about. The other side of that is he got crabby. Well, yeah. God, there were days he was. Fatigued of being ill. Exactly. To be that sick for that long. And I think something I saw with caregiver fatigue, like being on the outside looking at you experiencing caregiver fatigue, was that you would kind of put it off as, no, I'm not going through that. It's nowhere near what Bob is going through. And so I think people in caregiver roles can kind of trick themselves because they see people at their worst and going through the worst stuff. And mm-hmm. they say, it doesn't hold a candle to what the person is going through. So I'm not really going through anything. Right. Because we can get in this kind of competitive thing with our mental health and our illness. And that can be really dangerous. We really need to take a step back every once in a while and say, what am I actually experiencing? What am I actually feeling? Just on my own, not not in comparison with anyone else. Because... Mm-hmm. Everyone experiences that stuff differently. And if you're experiencing fatigue, you're experiencing fatigue and you need to get it dealt with. You need to take care of yourself or you can't take care of anyone else. Right. The example that I give, the like the illustration I give to people because I've seen this used elsewhere is like the when you're on a plane and you and the the when the oxygen mask drops, it says like okay, and if you're with a child, you need to put your own oxygen mask on first and then you need to put 
put the one on the child. I've used that a lot in, in counseling. I've straight up had a client say, you can't honestly tell me you wouldn't put it on the child first. <laughs> and I had to be like, you're probably right. And and I, yeah, I did that's have to realistic. Say, I know. I was like, until you're, you're right. in it. Yeah. In any situation like this, yeah. until you're in it, you don't know how you're going to deal with yeah. it. Yeah. And but but the fact that I know that about myself and the fact that she knows that about herself <laughs> is something that we do have to be more aware of mm-hmm. in that we are more focused on the other people and so we have to make a conscious effort to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of us have that personality that we're like, I can do this. I'm going to take care of everything. Everything's going to be okay. Some of us. Some of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that since Bob has died, I don't remember if it was you or your brother that said at one point, you're kind of the kind of person that needs to take care of someone. I think it might have been Gabriel, but you would probably agree with that. Well, it's we've both had to kind of stop you from doing that because so one of the jobs my mom has of the many she has <laughs> is that she part of her job as a director of religious education is she does the vacation bible school every summer mm. and it was going to be this coming week like tonight would have been the first night of it yep. i think yeah and she was at some point during the grieving on monday she was saying i can probably still do it and my brother and i had to be like no no, you're not going to do that. Like, it's just this kind of keep going, keep taking care of things, keep taking care of other people. Because at some point, like, Mom, you said, what do you do now when you stop doing that? I just crash out and cry. and Sometimes you need to. Yeah. So if you struggle with caregiver fatigue, it sounds too easy. But the idea is that you have to make yourself important to yourself and you have to take time and and that sounds I know that through the years when people would say that to me I'd be like okay yeah sure fine and then later I'd think when the hell am I going to do that you know but I do know from my life experience that there were times where I would go ahead and go out and see my friends or whatever and Bob was always real good about saying you know usually real good there were a few times but you know and and I did feel then more energy to come back and be more kind and loving to him because I had kind of recharged a little bit. I mean, I'm not talking about a week in Florida or anything, but no, just, you know, just an like evening a out. with your friends. Yeah, right. So what professional people tell people who have caregiver fatigue is exactly that, to take care of yourself, to be sure that you don't neglect your other relationships. Stay connected to your family and friends um, because they're your support and they're going to help you through this. And to get out of the house once in a while, not just stay confined in the house, staying active in things that you enjoy doing. Don't give up the things you enjoy. And of course, they put on the list, try to get enough sleep and try to eat well and try to exercise. All those things that we do for everyday normal self-care we should be doing when we're a caregiver well and that's another thing that i bring up to people struggling with self-care not only in caregiver fatigue but i think self-care is just a really hard thing for people to focus on because they say what you just said which is when am i going to do that i don't have the time to do that exactly but you're never gonna i mean adults don't have time to do things you have to prioritize what you do as a grown-up person, mm-hmm. like you have to say, okay, I need to make time to do this instead of just I need to wait until I have time to to eat right or get enough sleep. Like you have to say, no, sometimes I need to put some of the other things away and maybe shirk some of my other responsibilities to make sure I get enough sleep tonight. Right. I think the last thing I would say about this is when you are caring for a spouse or a parent who is terminally ill, you kind of start the grieving, which we're going to talk about next. Right. You kind of start the grieving before they're gone. 
because you start to lose the person that they used to be. It's sometimes entitled ambiguous grief, that you have this grief that doesn't really, you can't really put your finger on why you're feeling that way. But I do know that for myself with Bob, he he did, his personality would change depending on the day, but overall his personality changed somewhat. But the biggest part was the physicality of it, that he had changed so much that he couldn't, for over a year he was wheelchair bound, but then, then he got better, you know, um, and he got out of his wheelchair. And that was like one of the upsides of the roller coaster ride that we got him out of the chair and we were walking. And, um, but, you know, losing parts of his feet, that was very traumatic. And so you kind of start to grieve the person that you had, you know, the person that, that you married or the person who you knew before the illness is changing and different. And you, and you grieve that. And that being said, I really expected that when the day would come for Bob to pass away, that it would not be a big step because I had grieved his loss several times in the last five years. But I'm amazed at at how I can't breathe so many times a day, you know? So I and I think the reason that we I I really did want to do this podcast today was to tell you if you have ever gone through grief or if you're going through grief now or if you go through grief in the future to plant this in your brain that it is normal to have those feelings like, God, I can't do this. I just can't do it. The important thing in, in being a caregiver is to have a support system. That is also the most important part of grief is to have a support system, to have someone to talk to, to have somebody to cry with. It's never the right thing to do to tell yourself, I should be over this. No. I should I should be okay by now because that's nonsense when you're going through grief. Yeah. Okay. Can we shift gears into just plain old grief? Full-on grief, baby. Yeah. Full on. I think the thing I, I struggle with with grief is when I'm in a clinician role dealing with people who have grief. Because to me, that is very much something you should be seeking counseling for. Mm-hmm. But dealing as a clinician, it's very hard to, I'll use the word, diagnose grief. It's very hard to know how to make it like a, hey, insurance companies, mm-hmm. this is the thing that they need to be talking to someone about. Mm-hmm. In the DSM-4, there used to be something called the bereavement exclusion, um, where clinicians were advised not to diagnose major depressive disorder up to two months after the death of a loved one, which I can understand from one frame, but from another, it's possible to have clinical depression and it have it just become worse after the death of a loved one. Right. And so if you're if you're in this weird place where you're, you know, you're excluding yourself from people and you're thinking of suicide and, and, and isolating yourself and doing all this stuff, and it's because you were dealing with depression before and this is like the inciting incident to seek counseling, then that exclusion could really harm you. It could really like make the clinician say, Well, it's not major depression because you're just grieving. Mm-hmm. You know, that that can be really harmful. Thankfully, in five, this was removed, but it it doesn't mean that people will be automatically diagnosed with depression after a loss. They still have to meet all the other criteria of depression, not just being sad about the loss that they just experienced. So so that that is something to keep in mind if you are grieving or if you know someone who's grieving and you're encouraging seeking counseling, that it's not like you're going to go in and be diagnosed with depression automatically. Right, and, and it's not always appropriate to think, well, oh, I guess I need to be medicated because I'm depressed. You know, I mean, that might happen eventually if you're mm-hmm. not able to, right. you know, boy back up again. But And I've had people who have come in like months after the loss and say like, this wasn't a huge deal to me until recently. 
And I don't know why I'm going through all this grief now. But that's just because it looks different. Mm-hmm. It looks so different for everyone. It depends on how close you were to the person. It depends on what your relationship was to the person. It depends on so many factors. It depends on how it happened. It All of this stuff. It's just very hard to put a track on on grief. It's not like you go through the same things as someone mm-hmm. else who's in even the same situation. Right. It's just very, very individual. I think one of the things I would diagnose people with who come in for grief is something called adjustment disorder. Adjustment disorder is just what it sounds like. It's like, I am going through a big adjustment in my life. It, the, the DSM states like, well, within three months before the initiation of counseling, if this event has happened. So um, I deal with it for kids a lot who are going through like a divorce mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So those are adjustment. But the DSM says, well, you're dealing with it in a way that is beyond the scope of normal dealing with it. Now, I do have sort of a problem with using that for grief because I don't think there's a quote-unquote there's a normal. normal scope. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I think that, yeah, maybe there are reactions that seem a lot bigger, mm-hmm. but that's just, that's how grief looks. It's just so different. So I think that that's, like I said, probably what I would use. Now, you could also use some of the trauma diagnoses. So... You could, mom, I think that's what I would use for you at this point is like maybe not a PTSD, but there's something called acute stress disorder that's very similar. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about just you finding him Yeah, was very, very traumatic. Yep. And and having to deal with that day where he was just in the other room and, and we were dealing with cops and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, for you, just dealing with that was a trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think that is not insignificant that's not something that you can just be like yeah it's it's fine it's just a thing that happens yeah it's not. yeah exactly it's not like something you do it you know it's like oh yeah i've done this before yeah God, no. i hope not no. i hope i never have to do it again yeah. i said to my son gabriel at some point or maybe it was you i'm sorry i kind of it kind of that's <laughs> okay. one of the things that happens in grief is that you you can't focus very well i gotta say that that's a biggie for me right now but one of you said to me i said to one of you I've lived a long time, and this is the weirdest, worst day of my life. Yeah. Weirdest, worst. And I've been through some kind of crappy stuff, normal life crappy stuff, you know, that a lot of people go through, but weirdest, worst. So a lot of times when we talk about grief and, and dealing with death, people bring up the five stages of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are called the Kubler-Ross stages. It's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. This comes from a 1969 book called On Death and Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and it was based on her work with terminally ill patients in a hospice. So that's that's kind of where these whole stages kind of become ambiguous, where mm-hmm. these were actually originally meant to be a theory on how people cope with themselves about to die. Right. Like getting a terminally ill diagnosis or knowing that they are getting older and approaching death. I mean, all these things, This her theory was kind of based around that, and it has kind of taken on this new meaning. It, it wasn't originally meant to be on how people grieve, right. um, but it has kind of become adopted to that. She later stated in her life that these stages aren't linear. They're not predictable. You don't go through them the same way other people go through them. You might not hit all the stages. Like, you you may not go through all five. And she sort of regretted writing them in a way that wasn't as clear. She sort of regretted, like, that it had been misconstrued in the way that it has. Mm -hmm. 
That being said, there was a book published posthumously um, where Kubler-Ross expanded the model to include other types of personal loss, like the death of a loved one, even things like the loss of a job, the end of a relationship, uh, addiction, even like minor losses, you Mm -hmm. know, stuff like that. So she did kind of try to work work it into this expanded model Mm -hmm. that people had adopted for it. So it definitely... I almost feel like it fits better with like the end of a relationship, especially like a divorce. Yeah. Because you think about those stages that you go through when you go through the end of a relationship. When I was re- rereading it and stuff and I was thinking, I like what you just said that you kind of, it's not linear and that you go back and forth and because I don't know how bargaining works once they're already gone. But then I read that that would be the stage that that guilt falls under, which that's why when they expanded it they added kind of guilt yeah. like as a separate thing because they had i shock is one they had shock was the first one they they added shock as the first one and then the denial and bargaining and then they added guilt and then anger depression and acceptance and they kind of put hope with acceptance so they just kind of augmented it a yeah. little bit because that i remember saying that to nathan at some point on monday when we were i don't know driving back to the house to change or something mm-hmm. but i remember saying like denial doesn't make sense. I'm not in denial. But it's shock. shock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I might still be there. I mean, I've gone, I've gone, I got a little angry. I think I was angry at Bob, actually. I know some people get angry at God. I don't think I was angry at God, at least not at that point. I was a little angry at at Bob because he told me he was going to stick around longer. (laughs) He shouldn't have told me that. But the, that guilt part has been a big piece for me. I have a lot of guilt. The guilt's big for me, too. I'm not sure why. I think that often for us when we lose a loved one, we feel like if only I wouldn't would have been with them more, if only I would have talked to them more, if only if I would have spent more time with them. The last couple of weeks that Bob was alive, <laughs> I was painting the front porch on our house. Mm-hmm. And so I would come home from work, and instead of going in and sitting and watching TV with him or, you know, like just hanging out with him like I usually did after work, several of those nights in the last two weeks I was out working on that damn porch. <laughs> so now it's that, it's that guilt feeling like if I would have known he was going to go, I would have been sitting with him every single minute. But you can't, you can't know when it's time. Right. And life you got to do life. You can't sit around in fear that someone you love is going to die. You got to do life. Yeah, that's the hard part. There's this balance that you've got to strike between like having this kind of understanding and respect of of death. I mean, I'm sure at some point we'll do an episode on like existential philosophy and stuff and and the acceptance of death is a big part of that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of this understanding of what death is and, and how it affects and how it's a part of life. But this kind of striking a balance between that and just like living in constant fear of death, mm-hmm. like that's not healthy, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be this kind of knowing that it's a possibility. I know it's that cheesy, like live every day like it's your last. I mean, maybe don't do it to that extent, but... Carpe diem. Yeah. Like have it in your mind that it's it's a constant possibility. Yeah. But that can't let you let you stop yourself from doing things. Right. I have to admit, there's also been a really small part of of these weird, crazy, bouncing around thoughts of a fear for my own life. Like if life is that fragile, that one minute he was alive, I mean, just hours before mm-hmm. he was snoring in my face, yeah. um, and then 
he's gone just like that. And so then there's this fear about my own life. Like, well, holy crap, does that mean that, you know? There is this weird, like, even in, I think when you were talking about ambiguous grief before, what I wanted to kind of poke in was that I think that's big in, like, dementia and 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 that kind of stuff absolutely you you grieve the loss of the like you said you said it well the person that it was the Mm -hmm. person that they were and even in cases like that where the death itself seems to take a long time like in terminally ill people where you just kind of see this gradual decline the actual death is always sudden Mm -hmm. because one minute you're alive and the next you're not Mm mm-hmm and so it's never, like, I know we think of some deaths as very slow and very torturous, but the death itself is always instant. It's a moment. Just a moment of time. Isn't that weird? It's freaky. I think it is important just to say again what you said, that that there's no there's no schedule for this. It's not yeah. like, okay, you're going to be in denial for a week, and then you're right. going to... Wouldn't and, that make things easier? Right. And that you're going to think, oh, good, I'm almost to acceptance, and then bam... All of a sudden, you're on denial. All of a sudden, you a, can bounce around. A big thing I've seen with clients that I've worked with for grief is that it, it maybe won't hit you until, like, an event comes along. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I dealt with someone who had really not, uh, I think it was her grandma that died, and she really didn't experience the grief until, like, almost a year later when it was around, like, a holiday. Mm-hmm. And so... It like this holiday hit and it was always a big family holiday for them and she just came apart and she was basically starting the grief process at that time. Mm. And so I think it was very shocking to her because she's like, this happened so long ago. Why is it only happening? Like, why am I only experiencing it now? And it was really intense because it had been so long. Mm -hmm. And I think she kind of felt alone because almost everyone else in her life had kind of already experienced their grief. And they weren't, it's not like they were over it because you're never really over it. Right. But they were in a very different, it looked very different for them than it was looking for her. So I think she felt very isolated in her experience. And and so I think it's always, it's always very jarring when you think grief is supposed to look a certain way and it looks very different. Mm-hmm. Even, even in this week, like in kind of the, like microcosm of this week Mm -hmm. there have been times where i have been kind of jarred by my own grief where on monday it was very intense and then tuesday it was kind of intense and then like i especially the visitation was on thursday Mm -hmm. and i wasn't really experienced i mean like i don't think i cried very much i think i felt like oh maybe i'm kind of over it Mm mm-hmm and then the funeral happened and I came apart. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's this kind of, we get lulled into a false sense of security a little bit. I think too, though, what happens with, what happened, I know with me personally for the visitation was that I started literally, I was dissociating because I was I was so overwhelmed with all of it, with all the grief, but also with all the love that was poured out at yeah, that visitation. Oh yeah. my gosh. I went back and looked at the list of names of the people who came through and I mean, it was weird because as I looked at the names, I was like, oh, yeah, because I had like literally forgotten I saw yeah, those people. Yeah. But like literally hundreds of people went through that line yeah. that night. And I think you just get to a point where, and I was getting to the point where I would just, I'd hug the person and sometimes they would get emotional and I would just look at him and go, I know, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it feels very surreal to be like in this visitation line where 
someone's going through and crying very intensely because this is kind of the first time that they've been close enough to mm-hmm. the event to feel it. Right. And you as the person who has been in there for a week are like not crying. Right. And you're like, am I bad for not crying? <laughs> That's am a really I... good point. That's like, a really good point. There were times during the visitation where I would kind of crack a joke. I mean, that's, as you guys have probably figured out by listening <laughs> that's to this. That's who we that's are. Kinda, yeah, it's kind of how we deal with things in our family. Mm-hmm. I remember even on Monday, I cracked a few jokes, and I immediately had this, like, guilt of, like, should I be doing this? <laughs> should, I, should I be making a joke right now? Is it illegal to make a joke on the day someone died? Ugh. It's so it's so weird. It was literally we were sitting at the, at the dining room table, literally waiting for the funeral home to come. Yes, and people were already texting me, already texting me that they knew Bob we had gone. We don't know how this happened. We yeah. don't know how the news got out. But, no. but I mean, this was the day. This was less than four hours after. I, as the daughter, got the call. Right. And so, like, less than five hours after you had found him, mom mom was getting texts like, I just heard the news. I'm so sorry. And we're sitting there going, And from not not people who are real close to our family. Like, we're talking... Like acquaintances. Yeah, people who knew me from church or people who knew me from my counseling area of my life. And I, I just... And so that was part of Anna's jokes, was that she was... Like my phone would ding, and she'd be like, "Oh, now it's Michael Jordan sending." Uh, hi, Bonnie. This is Michael Jordan. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and this is Pope Francis. Hi, Bonnie. This is Cher. I just wanted to. I just heard the news. I'm so sorry. Oh God! And I laughed, and it felt so good to laugh in that moment. And I think that's something I'd like to say too: is to not feel guilty about being normal for a second. Yeah. And I know there's no normal. We always talk about that. But you know what I mean here. I mean, in the midst of this trauma, and I mean, there are some deep shit trauma that happens to people. But, you know, just letting emotion out doesn't have to be just tears. Right. It can be laughter. It can it's, be, that's you a know. That's catharsis is laughter. Sure, absolutely. And, and I, in our family, that's I see a big this thing. even beyond grief and like in depression and stuff where people are going through the depression and then they say like, and then I, I'll have this moment where I'll, like, laugh. And then I'll be like, maybe I'm not depressed. But that's not... it. I mean, things like depression and grief are very kind of all-consuming a lot. Mm-hmm. And they're all-encompassing. But that doesn't mean there's not moments where you, you have a hit of dopamine and you just have to laugh. Like, exactly. And that doesn't lessen what you're feeling. It doesn't invalidate the feelings of grief and sadness that you're having. Right. And in fact, Bob was a goober. So I, I think he would like that we he were would, laughing. He would want us to laugh. Absolutely. He was the king of bad puns. and <laughs> Dad jokes. And Yeah, those dad jokes. He was good at those. <laughs> I don't really know where to go with this. <laughs> I don't either. Maybe, like, can we just talk for a minute about, like, what to do when you have grief? Yeah. Like, therapeutically, as a clinician, what would you recommend for people oh, who have grief? Yes. Before that, I would like to hop back to the stages for a second because mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the shock, which we already kind of touched on. But also, I'm just Sorry. spilled, I spilled mine. my bellini. <laughs> um, Even in grief, I'm a slob. But, like, I think one of the things that should be put in there, if it's not, is confusion. I think that maybe that goes, no, you get butts. Thank you. 
boy, I'll I'll second and third and fourth the confusion thing. Oh I think Lord. that maybe goes with shock, but I don't know. Like, yeah, your brain's just not working right. But I mean, there's. Oh, not at I all. I think confusion goes with the. the I mean, I'm going to link this back to caregiver fatigue. Mm-hmm. That you said there were times where there was like, I mean, emotions are so messy. Emotions mm-hmm. are so complicated that it's never easy to parse what we feel for someone. Our relationships with people are so complicated. And I think when a death happens, there can be this thing where like, I mean, it's that kind of like don't talk ill of the dead thing. Mm-hmm. But our relationships are complicated. And when someone dies, we can feel this. I think guilt ties in with that too. We can feel guilt that we had that not everything was peachy keen with them mm-hmm. all the time and that that maybe we had fights with with them sometimes but that's just how it is to be a human right and i think that that confusion with like trying to separate all that you're feeling and link it with the sadness can make it really hard to experience grief in a way that you think is easy mhm i mean grief is never going to be easy no and part of that is because it's never just like we were so happy and then we weren't. I mean, it's going to be we were happy and we fought and we made each other, you know, sad and we hurt each other and and then they die. Mm-hmm. And that's just over. It's very hard. Yes, it is hard. I think something that I've experienced in this is, especially in the visitation, people would walk through and say, I'm so sorry about your dad. Mm-hmm. And that's been very weird for me. I think I've alluded to this on the podcast before. My relationship with my birth father is very weird. Um, I haven't talked to him for like a decade at this point. I never called Bob dad, but he was my father figure. Mm-hmm. So it's just been very confusing to try to parse those feelings of, you know, who is my father figure and and I don't have this father figure in my life anymore. So that's been a big part of my grief journey. And I know that that's probably very different for even, like, my brother. Right. And and so that's just kind of another mark in favor of grief being very individual. Amen. That's right. This experience that I'm having is totally my own. Right. And I can't really commiserate with anyone about it because it's mine. And that's very hard. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's how I want to tie into what we should do about it, which is... Probably seek counseling. <laughs> yeah. So you can have someone that you can commiserate with about it and talk to about it and process all this stuff because it's very hard to be in like a family that's also experiencing grief. Because something that I've experienced in this past week is I need to be strong for you mm-hmm. because you're the one going through the most grief and I need to be strong for you. And it's very hard when and you, you have, have that. been, but but you have your own grief that has to be processed. Right. Yeah. So again, I mean, this links back to self-care and making sure that you are being taken care of even when there's all kinds of other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Anne and I are both um, humanistic counselors, and so we do believe in talk therapy and how important it is to just have someone to listen to you talk and not be judgmental and, and to reflect your feelings and have empathy for you. And accept what you're saying. Yeah, unconditional acceptance. And, and this is a perfect example of that that when you're grieving whatever kind of grief you're going through to to just have someone to listen to you and I did I think that's the most valuable part of counseling mm-hmm. so I I second what you said that it's a really good time to to have a counselor 
I think I would just add a couple of things real quick, again, very personally, that for me, and I alluded to this earlier, for me, part of my grieving process is very spiritual. I mean, really, the the heart of my grieving process is spiritual because my personal faith is that Bob is in heaven now. Bob and I are Catholic Christians, and so it's important to us that you know, we believe we we get to go be with Jesus in heaven when we when we're done. <laughs> and and I cling to that. I mean, I cling to it. And yet in grief, there are moments when you doubt and you think, what if it's not right? What if I'm getting it wrong and someone else has it right? And he gets up there and flashes his Jesus garden at somebody else <laughs> there, you know. You have those moments. Yeah. Um, but you have to you have to cling to that spiritual hope. At least I do. I have to in my in my personal I journey. I think it's very important to have a spiritual hope, even if it doesn't look like I die and I go to heaven. Because mm-hmm. I am also Christian. I was obviously raised Catholic Christian. I think I've become more just kind of general Christian mm-hmm. as I've gotten older. But I've talked with a lot of people about what they think happens after we die, and people have a lot of different answers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are some people who say, like, I think you die and then you just stop existing. Mm -hmm. But then I think the spirituality piece becomes, what does your life mean if that's all the time you have? Right. Like, literally, that's it and nothing happens after. Then the spirituality becomes, how, how do you impact the world in a positive way? I think that's spiritual, too. I think spiritual is just anything that extends beyond the physical and the natural, like the, anything supernatural, I think. Right. So I think that even if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, I, I don't really have that, like, Christian belief or, or you know, any other kind of, I'm not, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not anything like that. Like, I, I don't have that kind of prescribed belief. That's okay mm-hmm. as long as you kind of know what you believe. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can reconcile that with things like death and dying and changing situations in life and all that stuff as long as you have something that you believe in and you can stick to because when we have something we believe in and we can stand on that it gives us a much more solid base to deal with the things life throws at us okay so the only thing i'd like to add is we talk all the time on freudian sips about self-awareness and how important it is to you know, be the best person you can be. We have certain like little tag things that we always put in. I would add that one of those tags would be the idea that it is so important in relationships to be real and to communicate. I mean, that's a heart of a lot of counseling, especially couples counselings that we do, that to be open to each other and to talk to each other, to say what you mean to each other, say it. I will eternally be grateful that the last words that Bob said to me were, I love you so much. And not only is that important to me because I can hold on to that as as a truth and that all the stuff I feel guilty about isn't really the real stuff, but also it's kind of a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy technique to, you know, like focus on a phrase or when you start to spiral negative thoughts to have a phrase or a thought that stops you. And that's what I've been doing. When I start to spiral negatively into what could I have done to be a better wife? What could I have done to make his life better? And I didn't do, I stop. And I remember his voice so clearly saying that, I love you so much. And that's kind of my anchor phrase from him that that holds me from spiraling too low. Because 
that goes back to my faith again, that I do believe that someday I will see him again in heaven. And so, but I would encourage you, if you love someone, tell them, tell them often. And that's not just the psychology part of me, <laughs> not just the counselor part of me. I do, I do think that's very important right. that you tell the people you care about that you appreciate them and yeah. that you care for them. That's a huge part of being mentally healthy. But I also think it's just a, a way of being happy. It's a way of be, having a better life, having well, more fulfilling life. And it's about being genuine with the people you're around. That's a good word. Being authentic. So that would be my last thought. Tell the people that you love that you love them. Be authentic with them. And if you're grieving, look for a support system and perhaps a counselor who can help you with that. Hell, reach out to us. I mean, we're clearly going through it too. So, and, and reach out to people around you. Because if you're grieving, the high chances are that people around you are also grieving in their own way. Yeah. And like I said before, it, it's an easy trap to fall into where you say like, I can't bother them because they're also grieving. But one of the things that I push in my counseling and that's very big in like group counseling and stuff is something called universality which is where we have this understanding that we're not the only ones going through something and that the fact that other people are going through it is just enough of a boon sometimes and enough of a, uh, something to say like, okay, because I'm not alone and because other people are going through this and they're surviving, I can survive too. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important to know that you're not alone. If you're going through grief or you have gone through grief or in the future if you go through grief, know that you're not alone. And know that if you reach out to other people, you can find that universality and that comfort in that you're not the only person going through this. Can I thank the listeners? Please do. <laughs> we should also... I'm Anna. We didn't even say that no, in the beginning, did we? this is Freudian Sips, and I'm Anna. And I'm Bonnie. Okay. And this is usually a podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. And today it's about sad. And that's okay. Sometimes things have to be sad. Mm -hmm. Usually we're much more uh, lively and funny. Mm -hmm. And We are hilarious, aren't we? We are so funny, <laughs> usually. So we'll get back to that. We will. Today we just had to... We do thank you for sharing time with us. And we do thank you for letting us be real with you. Letting us be authentic yes. with you. Um, kind of to remind you that we are all in this journey together mm -hmm. and that life is hard sometimes but but we hold each other up and help each other through so thank you and we'll be talking again soon yes back to normal programming next week probably yes, yes. so yes thank you for listening thank you for letting us share this part of our lives you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all by the name Freudian Sips Pod. You can find us on our site, FreudianSipsPod.com, where you can see all the other episodes where we're much funnier. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us, FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. I, I wasn't being facetious when I said if you want to reach out to us and say, hey, this is my grief story. Hey, you know, like, this is this is how it's been for me. This is how that's, maybe we'll have a little bit in an episode where we, we kind of like read to some hear of those. From you, yeah. yeah, if you, if you want to share some of those stories if you want us to share some of your stories where like i said that universality piece where other people can hear not just from us but maybe from you guys like this is how it looks for me and this is how it looked for me i think that's important so if you do feel like you want to share that with us we would love to hear it and we would love to send you back our love yes we're also on Patreon if you want to support the show. Uh, we're 40 and Sips Pod on there. And please remember to leave us a nice rating and review if you can do that wherever you're listening. Our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. <laughs> <laughs>